Groucho Marx once said, Outside of a dog, a book is a man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. This is Inside of a Dog, a podcast about books, writing and good stories. Not dogs. Hello and welcome to another episode of Inside of a Dog, a podcast about books, writing, reading and publishing, you name it, all things literary. I'm Darren Lee and in today's podcast I'm going to be talking sci-fi with Jack Fennell. Jack is the editor of A Brilliant Void, an anthology of Irish science fiction published late last year by Tramp Press. I might have mentioned this in a previous episode, but it was one of my books of 2018. So it was really great to talk to Jack about the stories included and the histories behind them. I tend to say this every episode, but this was one of my favourite interviews since I launched the podcast. Not to make any of my previous guests feel bad. uh, So by way of making it up to them, I thought I'd share a quick bit of alumni news. Scott Manley Hadley's book, Bad Boy Poet, has been published recently. Scott's episode is one of the most popular ones we've done on Inside of a Dog. Uh, You might also remember my chat with Will Ashen about the excellent Strange Labyrinth. Well, his book, Chamber Music, about the Wu-Tang Clan, is now out. I was lucky enough to be in the UK during Will's Mammoth book tour, so it was good to get a copy and hear more about the project firsthand. Uh, It's currently longlisted in the Penderian Music Prize, so best of luck there to Will. The Comma Book of Birmingham, that's still available and I believe has more events in the pipeline. Uh, And Freya Morris's This Is Not About David Bowie is also still available. I've said this before, but everyone gives up their time for free to guest on this podcast. So if you like what you hear, please support our authors by buying their books. It really makes a difference. So anyway, if you remember last year, I shared with you my New Year's resolution to try and read all of James Joyce's Ulysses. In what's become a semi-regular feature of the podcast, it's time to find out how well I've done after 13 months. Four hundred and one pages. So, yeah, I, I still appear to be clinging in there. Anyway, keeping things Irish, on to Jack Fennell and A Brilliant Void, which is a superb and critically acclaimed collection of rare and unique Irish science fiction, and it's now available from Tramp Press. This interview was recorded just before Christmas, so apologies it's taken so long to drop. Time management is not my forte, but I hope you agree it's been well worth the wait. Five, four, three, two, one... I'm the author of Irish Science Fiction, and I'm the editor of the short story collection A Brilliant Void, published by Tramp Press. Brilliant. And so 
how did you get involved with this project? Well, it, it started off that uh, somebody wrote an article in, I think it was Village Magazine, all about Irish sci-fi. And I had written a book about that based on my doctoral thesis. And they relied quite heavily on my book in writing this article. And then I think uh, one of the uh, women from Tramp Press read the thing or came across it. So, you know, they saw that I was featured quite heavily. So they sent me an email and said, hey, listen, we've been thinking about putting together an anthology of short Irish sci-fi from back in the day. Would you be interested? And I immediately said yes. I think it was the fastest I said yes to anything. And I have to say, I mean, it, it was an amazing process. Like, I mean, I, I spent a year working on the book. It didn't feel like work at all. Um, they're an absolute joy to work with, and I'm not just saying that. Because, it, I mean, it is a brilliant collection. It, it's one of those things where, I'm, obviously, you can tell from my accent that I'm British, but um, I wouldn't sort of have thought there would be a really great sort of literary sci-fi movement based in Ireland. Uh, is, does that still surprise people? It does. It does. And to be honest, it surprised me uh, years ago when I started researching. Uh, you know, when, when the time came for me to pick a topic for my doctoral work, I thought... Yeah, you know, I know there's a few Irish sci-fi things out there. I'll go for that. There won't be too many of them. It'll be a nice, handy, contained little project. It'll be grand. And then when I got into it, I discovered that there were scores and scores of things out there. I mean, I had no idea before I started how much of it there really was. Uh, so, you know, like, I mean, and obviously, like, the more I talk about this project, the more similar reactions i get from other people where they go like oh my god like, i mean is that really a thing and well, <laughs> yeah it is it turns out so you mentioned that you, you're already kind of familiar with a lot of this because of your thesis but where did you, how do you, how do you even begin to kind of go through all of this material and kind of put together a collection well i, I wanted to kind of do something new and like the um, lisa and sarah at tramp had told me to kind of you know, go for things that hadn't really been discussed before. So I kind of consciously strayed away from the book I'd written before. To be honest, I, I didn't just want to include a bunch of stuff that I could rattle off the top of my head. Um, so what that involves is just uh, going through other people's bibliographies. It goes. It involves going through other people's archives. It involves, like, if you, if you identify somebody who wrote something back in the day, you look at everything else they wrote to see if anything there might fit the bill, too. And what I found, like, and this was true in my doctoral work and in work for this book, that most of it came to me through word of mouth. You know, that you would say to someone, oh, yeah, I'm doing something on Irish sci-fi. And then they would say, oh, have you heard of such and such and such and such and i'd go well no i haven't <laughs> so i would add those lists. i would add those to the list and then it would turn out that every person i spoke to had two or three different examples and they all thought that those were the only two examples so the knowledge was out there it was just distributed and that's something that I keep finding today. So you must have gone through quite quite a lot of stories then, because there's about, am I right in saying it's about 15, 16 in the collection? There's uh, 15. Yeah, but how many did you kind of read as part of your research, just a ballpark figure? I read, um, let's see, there's one 
anyway, uh, two, I'll say two out of them were part of my doctoral research. Oh, no, sorry. I meant just like, you know, you were saying that people keep recommending stuff. You must have read a lot of stories to kind of whittle this down to 15. Um, any oh, idea, right. like, what, where you were to sort of begin with. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I, I have no idea how many I went through. Um, I mean, I, I found a rake of things that are just not in the book because I couldn't find a way to make them fit or I couldn't edit them down to the right size and that kind of thing. And they're out there. I mean, that's a, maybe a project for another day. It's kind of, it, it's not something that I know off the top of my head how many stories I read. <laughs> it's too much to think but, of. <laughs> it's too much to think. It, it was kind of like, no, 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 okay, that's not working. Put it to one side. You know, maybe come back to it in a year's time or something. Uh, so, yeah, but there was a lot. Was there anything that you you read that kind of really leapt out at you as being a, a complete surprise? A complete surprise? Well, I'll tell you, this is related to uh, the gender issue, okay? That, that like, uh, Lisa and Sarah were, were very keen to get an equal uh, gender representation across men and women, right? which is fair enough. And I said, yep, I'm all for that. And I went out and I was kind of going through what I could find, all the kind of the old reviews of books to kind of indicate where I should be looking. And I came to the conclusion that, okay, that, you know, Irish women just did not write a whole pile of sci-fi. You know, I mean, it's just, it's not out there to be found. And Lisa and Sarah kept kind of encouraging me to dig deeper and said, look, widen the scope if you have to. So I did for a finish. And I just said, look, like, in order for the sake of getting parity, here, I'll kind of broaden it out a bit. And what I found was that there was a rake of things out there by women authors that had just been mislabeled because they were women. Mm. You know, so, so, like, there was bona fide sci-fi out there that had just been mislabeled as, you know, romance, fairy tales, you know, wishful, you know, whatever, whatever the hell else. And it hadn't been precisely summarized or anthologized or, you know, synopsized or anything like that. So um, one thing that really kind of caught me by surprise was Mercia, the Astronomer Royal, which is one of the stories that ended up in A Brilliant Void. And it's basically, it's, it's a story of uh, workplace sexual harassment. I was going to ask about that because I think this is the one story when I've heard you being interviewed previously that everyone goes to as being very relevant to what we're yeah. talking about today. I mean, it was written in 1895, am I right in thinking? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and it is even for that time it it's a very sort of progressive view of it, isn't it? Well, it is, yeah, because you know the the whole the, the issue of the sexual assault ends up in court, and people actually kind of uh, hear evidence for themselves, and they decide, uh, uh, you know, actually, you know, she's right, and he did overstep the mark, but. Uh, you know, people keep bringing that up. Oh, yeah, wow, it's written in 1895 and it's still relevant today. And I just, I'm inclined to think, wow, that's depressing. Yeah, well, that that's another way of looking at it, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I think one of the great things is it's, it's actually a lot of the, the female writers that are in this book, their stories kind of leap out a little bit more. Um, and I don't hmm. know if that's because, uh, I guess, I mean, the you start off, uh, with sort of 1837 i think the stories go up to the 60s yep and uh, but they're predominantly sort of round about i guess the 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 late 19th century 
and there's very much that kind of you can tell by reading some of the the stories written by male authors is that they're kind of very much in this sort of detective-y conan doily kind of feel to them whereas the female writers seem to have much more of a blank sheet to kind of let their imagination sort of run riot so i wonder if that's probably because you know that they were they were sort of ignored or they were dismissed it kind of almost gave them a, a little bit more freedom than you would get yeah i mean that that's a very good way to put it actually the like i mean the, the idea like i mean that i mean a lot of them wrote under pseudonyms as well for example like so uh clotilde graves or clotilde graves i i still haven't figured out how to pronounce her name <laughs> good. Uh, I'm, she, I'm glad because I, I was going to ask you about her later and that gets me off the hook yeah i i mean I, I've never heard her name spoken aloud by anyone who knew her, so unfortunately I don't know how to pronounce her name properly. But professionally, she wrote as Richard Dehan. You know, the old thing where women authors would use male pseudonyms or they would use ambiguously gendered pseudonyms to kind of fly under the radar, so to speak. You know, I, I think that uh, one thing that I found is that the women authors in this are kind of much more world-weary, they're a bit more cynical, perhaps, but like you said, like, I mean, there's no kind of uh, formal or structural uh, kind of necessities woven in, right? So they're not trying to kind of match up to what's been done before. I mean, they're, they are, they do, as you say, have a blank canvas. Uh, like, I mean, one thing, like, I mean, you brought up the Conan Doyle thing and Clotilde or Clotilde Graves' story, uh, The Great Beast of Cathaway, is in there too, uh, which is about a dinosaur hunt. Of course, Conan, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote The Lost World back in the 19th century about discovering a place in South America that was full of dinosaurs that somehow still exist and blah, blah, blah. She does the same thing, but she approaches it from a really introspective, characterful kind of a place, you know, where it's really a character study of guilt and self-loathing and grief and hatred and it's i mean it has a very goofy premise if you look at it like you know mm. a guy goes to hunt a dinosaur but you know when you're reading it you kind of think oh oh wow <laughs> i've been inside the head of you're right it's, it's very it's very psychological isn't it and it doesn't go yeah. for that kind of daring do kind of rob dinosaurs yeah. now it, it is yeah it is very it's it's quite a suffocating story, and I kind of mean that as a compliment. It, it's just that there is just a sense of dread and guilt throughout the whole thing, and it's almost like the monster okay. takes second place. It's just really a metaphor, mm. almost. Yeah, and and then the, like I mean, the, and the fact that it's told through the viewpoint of a little boy, you know, and you, you think like I mean, this child who's completely at the mercy of this broken man who kind of doesn't know how to handle his own. Uh, emotions and he doesn't know how to handle his own guilt and self-loathing whatever and, he, and you kind of because you're looking at him through the, the viewpoint of this vulnerable little human like, i mean you're exactly right i mean suffocating is the right adjective for that really and on the subject of um clotilde graves um uh, there's another story from her in the book lady clam sorry lady clam bevan's baby which i sure. think for me has probably the greatest closing line of any short story I've ever read. Um, and I'm not sure whether we, we should be spoiling it at all, uh, but um, are you happy for us to do that? I'm happy for us to do that, all right. I mean, I think it's already been spoiled by 
a couple of other people. Um, well, I'll just well, say, like, I mean, if anybody wants to read the story without this being spoiled, just skip ahead. Hands on ears now, yes. Uh, and the the closing line is, the child had a moustache, <laughs> which is just brilliant. And it's it's quite a, it's a very horrific story. Uh, and it's brilliantly told. And then it just has this kind of closing line, which is horrific, but at the same time, hilarious. Uh, <laughs> and I absolutely love that. Um, I mean, each story that you have in the book, you do a little bit of an introduction by way of kind of explaining a, a tiny bit about the author and, and a certain amount of context for, for the story. Uh, when you were reading these stories um and you're obviously researching the people who wrote them at all were there any kind of characters that really stood out because we've mentioned clotilde graves but um jane barlow was somebody who kind of piqued my interest jane barlow is very interesting and i wish i knew more about her um it's just a, you know like the, the the bit of information i have it kind of it doesn't really go into you know what she did in her later life or anything like that i mean i would love to find out more um She's just like, I mean, her work is fascinating. And I presume it's because her dad was the vice provost of Trinity College and he was a doctor of divinity. So presumably the family home would have been full of philosophy books and what have you. But I mean, I, I did one of her things for my doctorate, which was um, a history of a world of immortals without a god. Uh, very unwieldy kind of a title, but it's about a misanthrope from Earth who transports himself to Venus and in Venus, he finds a utopian society where people never get old, they never die. And the only thing they want is to kind of find out why they're there, who created them, is there a god, and what have you. And because he's the first guy from outside their world, they're mad to question him about stuff. And he, because he's like an unreconstructed misanthrope from Earth, he just he gives them such a degraded, vile horrible rundown of what life is like on planet earth that he plunges these poor hapless immortal venusians into uh, the depths of despair from which they can never recover and then he just kind of goes home (laughs) (laughs) it's uh it's it's, it's like okay i mean there's multiple things going on there and then the story that i picked for a brilliant void is called an advance sheet which takes a Nietzschean uh, concept called the eternal return, which is like this idea that, okay, the matter in the universe, there's only a finite amount of matter, and there's a finite amount of ways that it can be arranged in a meaningful way. So that means that everything that you see around you, everything that you do, everything that has ever happened, is going to happen an infinite number of times until the end of the universe, if the universe ever ends. And she takes that concept and she uses it to kind of fashion an explanation for precognitive dreams. You know, the idea that some planets might be absolutely identical to us, but they're just maybe like a day or two older. And that somehow we can subconsciously tune into them. Um, I mean, I'm in awe of anyone who can contemplate that kind of stuff without going completely mad it is a mind-blowing story and i i have to admit out of the collection it's it's probably my personal favorite um because it is just that she gets across that conceptual 
notion in a really sort of easy to understand way whereas if you were reading that maybe in a physics textbook or some kind of you know philosophy kind of thing you would still kind of grapple with it um yeah. and it is absolutely brilliant and she wrote a lot with her father as well on, under a different pen name didn't she, she did, yeah. they did yeah they, they wrote together they shared a pen name um antara's scorpios you know like i mean i, I it's it, it can be sometimes difficult to tell who wrote what and what have you but um you know i mean i think possibly that healthy back and forth relationship between father and daughter also kind of lent itself to this philosophical tenor of her work that's very true i mean this i mean there's a lot of the authors that you have in this collection are very fascinating you kick kick things off with the new frankenstein by william mcginn yeah. which is a, a, a very strange piece uh it's kind of like an, an, an imagined sequel slash reboot of frankenstein written by someone who if i'm correct has never read frankenstein um can you tell me a little bit about william mcginn william mcginn was a cork man uh from the early 19th century uh born and reared in cork city uh eventually he moved over to london uh he kind of became part of the literary set over there. Uh, he worked for Charles Dickens on quite a number of occasions. You know, Charles Dickens had various literary magazines and William McGinn would write stories and reviews for him. Uh, the reviews were always anonymous. Uh, one interesting story about uh, William McGinn is that he once wrote an anonymous review of an, like of um, a Whig MP, I think he, I think he was a Whig MP. Uh, Grantley Berkeley wrote uh, a, no a novel of um, basically a fictionalized version of his own family history, and he published it. This was his debut novel. William McGinn wrote an anonymous review of this novel and completely slated it. Said it was a load of crap. You shouldn't waste your time on it. So Berkeley and his brother showed up at the print shop where the elderly man who had kind of printed off the, the newspaper was working. They went in there, they beat seven shades of shit out of him, and then they left. And William McGinn was outraged at what they had done, and he challenged Grantley Berkeley to a duel to settle the matter. Wow. And they actually, like, the duel went ahead, and uh, McGinn got wounded in the shoulder, and after that, they called it a draw, and the whole thing was dropped, I think. So, uh, you know, bad bad book reviews meant something back in those days, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you've had good reviews for this anyway, so at least you're not going to have to kind of uh, kick yeah, off yeah. any jewels yourself. Yeah. Um, one <laughs> of the God. things as well that, that struck me is that uh, I, I'm just kind of just very quickly flicking through the contents page now is that the stories are kind of presented in chronological order. Uh, that is yeah. to say, you know, the earliest one is first and then we kind of end up in the, the 60s. Was there a deliberate strategy for that? Well, I mean, on, on the one level, I mean, the chronological order is kind of the easiest way to organize stuff. Um, I mean, on, on the other hand, like, this was a genre that was growing all the time. So I wanted to kind of give that sense of historical progression because, you know, you can compare William McGinn's story to... Uh, Kahlo Saunders story from 1960 and you can kind of and I know that you know that that last one was actually translated by me so I'm the one who put it into English but I didn't change the spirit or the tone of it that much so you can see how this kind of writing evolved from one to the other 
And some people have said that they found the earlier pieces a bit difficult to read and what have you, because it has that 19th century cadence and all that kind of stuff. So um, on the one level, I wanted to do that. On the other hand, it was just kind of natural for me because that's the normal mode that I work in. I mean, all my academic work has been about uh, basically literary historiography. It's about looking at things in order and seeing what people were reacting to, what they were thinking about, how the events of the day were impinging on their imagination, whatever. It, it was just kind of a natural thing for me to fall into rather than a conscious strategy, I suppose. Because it's almost like you're you're also kind of showing the growth of the genre in in terms of the style and themes, but you're also kind of it's it's almost like a history lesson for for Ireland, the growth of Ireland, because certainly towards the end of the book, the the stories sort of naturally get a little bit more political, uh, and definitely yep. yeah, um, sort of the last third, you, you get a sense there's a definite gear change around about 1922. Uh, and sure. especially with Dorothy McArdle, who is another really interesting character. Oh yeah, Dor Dorothy McArdle is a fascinating character, and Tramp have actually brought out two of her novels. Uh, I mean, this is all part of the Recovered Voices series, so, you know, Tramp goes back and they find uh, works of literature that have been, you know, maybe forgotten or neglected, or, you know, just need a, a bit of love. So they've actually published two of Dorothy McArdle's novels. They've published The Uninvited, or Uneasy Freehold was the original title, and the other novel that they uh, published was The Unforeseen. And they're very creepy, very affecting kind of novels, you know what I mean? If they were published today, you'd think, oh, wow, Jesus, I mean, th th these are, you know, modern classics kind of thing. So uh, Dorothy McArdle was a very interesting woman. Uh, she's probably best known, rather than a fiction writer, she wrote um, like the first approved, government-approved history of the Free State and, you know, the history of the War of Independence and what have you. Used to be great friends with De Valera. They had a big falling out after the original uh, Constitution was agreed upon with its very reactionary attitude towards women and their place in society. But, you know, she herself, I mean, she was a teacher. Uh, she taught at a school for girls in Dublin, and she was arrested twice in that uh, capacity. She was arrested once by the Royal Irish Constabulary, and then after the War of Independence, uh, she was locked up by the pro-treaty forces when the civil war broke out because she was morally opposed to the Anglo-Irish treaty and the terms thereof. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a fascinating moment. And, and the story that uh, you've included in the book, Story Without an End, that was written in Mount Joy Jail? It was. Right? Yeah. Yes, it, it was written in Mount Joy when she was imprisoned for her anti-treaty activities. And I mean, like, I mean, there, there was various um, rationale that I wanted to kind of rely on when I was pulling together the stories for this thing. And I, I wanted some things that were historically relevant. And this was definitely one of them. It was like, it, it tells the story of somebody who has emigrated to uh, Philadelphia, which is where a lot of Irish rebels ran uh, when the War of Independence started and when, the, like, at the start of the 20th century, when all that stuff was kicking off. And when she's over there, she tells the story of a precognitive dream she's had, 
where a guy that herself and her husband have saved from a British patrol comes back later in an Irish uniform and arrests her husband to take him away and execute him. Uh, so, I mean, and when this, this is written in Mountjoy jail during the Civil War because she dared to speak out about the treaty and what have you, you can definitely tell that, you know, she's not pussyfooting around the issue. You know? I mean, she's, she's putting it front and center kind of thing that, you know, I mean, a lot of people at the time, they felt betrayed by what happened, you know, that the Republic that they were fighting for never materialized. And instead what they got was this uh, kind of watered down compromise where, you know, the post boxes were painted green and apart from that, nothing else changed. It, it might be kind of, um, you know, pushing the definition of science fiction a small bit, but I would argue that in Irish literary tradition and in Irish folklore and what have you, like the tradition of precognitive dreams has been particularly strong. So, I mean, you could say maybe it's fantasy or maybe it's more far-fetched or a ghost story or something like that, but by the same token, I see no reason not to regard it as a warning sent back through time. Yeah, it's very true. And it's it's a, it's a remarkably effective story. Uh, another story that doesn't kind of pussyfoot around is the Chronotron, um, oh, yeah. which, uh, I, I, for the benefit of, of those who haven't read the book, uh, would you like to kind of um, tell us a little bit about that? Right. The, the, the Chronotron... Um... The thing to remember throughout all of this is that it's it's meant to be funny, okay? It's not meant to be offensive or inflammatory at all. Um, it's about the invention of a time machine by, like, an Irish professor. Uh, by the way, like, one thing that I make a note of in the introduction is that if you ever hear somebody described as the cleverest man in Ireland, that's your cue to run away as fast as you can. Immediately. <laughs> Because nothing good is going to come of that. But uh, this mad scientist invents a time machine and he invites his neighbor to come along and go for a spin. And like the neighbor is skeptical at first, but then you know he sees it in action for himself. And it turns out that the professor's ambition is to go back in time to 1920 and drop an atomic bomb on London. And by doing this, it will ensure an unambiguous victory for the IRA in the War of Independence, and thus it will avoid the civil war that will happen later. Unfortunately, you know, in finest sci-fi tradition, things do not go according to plan. <laughs> they end up in the wrong year, and when they drop the bomb, they end up causing a time paradox, because it turns out that the professor was born in London in the year 1921, which is where they've ended up. Uh, so and it ends. It's bookended by the neighbor who is trying to figure out what has actually happened. Because if the professor died in 1921, then he couldn't have built the time machine. And if he didn't build the time machine, he couldn't have gone back and dropped the bomb, which meant that he would have lived, which meant that he did grow up, and so on and so on and so on. It, it is a great story, and I think um, I heard you mention in a previous interview. It kind of almost. Uh, the, predicts back to the future in certain aspects of the, the story yeah i think it's it's an early um example of that kind of the, the grandfather paradox which is at the heart of back to the future you know this idea that um you know if you could go back and 
And if you went back in a time machine and somehow caused the death of your own grandfather, that would mean that you would never be born. But if you were never born, then you couldn't have gone back in time and killed your grandfather. So therefore, your grandfather lived, which meant that you did. <laughs> you were born. And it's just like a... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's a broken causality loop, uh, which is at the heart of... Uh, back to the Future, and Marty McFly goes back and he inadvertently almost erases himself from existence. Um, it was interesting to see this kind of a story written in Irish back in the 1940s. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that it has been explored elsewhere, or that it, it had been kind of thought out um, in, in other places around the same time. You know, just to, to kind of see somebody taking that story and writing it down in Irish for publication in a newspaper it was uh you know it, it took guts i'd say <laughs> to do that <laughs> expect people to get the joke it, it is very funny um so uh, and and this is from speaking from my own experience uh as a brit uh, i i did find it funny um so um <laughs> thankfully so um you kind of mentioned it a little bit there like some of these stories were originally sort of written in irish and then you've translated them and, and the chronotron is am i right in thinking that that name is is something that you've um come up with yeah uh, the original irish uh, word that uh, tarlock had used was kionador uh which I, I i kind of i spent the better part of a month trying to crack that note open and figure out where he had come up with it but uh the, the syllables mean something like kian uh in certain dialects it means uh the distant past or it means uh, like an eon gone by the other one adore it's like it's something that crops up in a number of irish language things it's like uh a kind of a generic uh suffix that's applied to something that indicates that it's a sci-fi invention so it's sort of like you know marvin the martian talking about, you know, his whatever, that, that ridiculous long name that he has for something that's going to blow up the planet, you know, like an alluvium pew 36 explosive space modulator or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, Ador in Irish seems to serve the same purpose. So I picked a sci-fi a sci syllable that does the same job. So it was like Crom from Kronos, Crom Atrom. And, um, I don't know, you, you have to kind of make it snappy and you know make it rhyme a bit i suppose so yeah, it's a very good title i mean it, it's uh, have you translated anything else before sort of outside of the sci-fi genre i mean do you think there's a particular set of challenges that translating sci-fi has that other genres wouldn't necessarily have oh god yeah yeah absolutely uh, i mean outside of sci-fi i translated a couple of john o'brien's early short stories into English, because uh, when he was a young fellow, when he was around 21 years old, he published a couple of short stories in Irish, and uh, so yeah, Neil Murphy and Keith Hopper, a couple of years ago, uh, brought out the short fiction of Flann O'Brien, and I translated a couple of things, a couple of his early things, into English for that, and you know, that, that was fairly straightforward, because he was writing for people that he wanted to get the joke, so he didn't put too much kind of weird stuff in the problem is that sci-fi is characterized by made-up words 
I mean, this is one thing that I mean, people who don't like it, this is probably the main thing that they don't like about it. It's just like there's a bunch of made-up words being thrown at them and they just see gobbledygook. And, you know, they say, okay, this is a bunch of noises with no referent. I don't know how to deal with this. And because Irish, as we speak it today, because as it was written in the 20th century, because it is largely a reconstructed language, back in the day, sci-fi didn't find fertile ground here in the Irish language because you had committees that were kind of coming up with new terminology for new inventions and new concepts. You had people surreptitiously kind of slipping in their own dialects preferred vocabulary for certain things so to the average joe on the street who is just trying to kind of learn the language and trying to trying to kind of get into using it a sci-fi story was really of no use to him because if there's a bunch of made up words in the middle of it uh, it doesn't help him to use the language in his everyday life which is why i mean if you go, go back and look at popular fiction that was published in irish during the early 20th century I mean, you get a lot of Westerns. There was a lot of Irish-language Westerns with cowboys called Sean and what have you, as Dermot Ferriter puts it, uh, because that genre didn't rely on made-up things. I mean, everything in a Western is something that you can relate to life on a farm. Mm. So, you know, the, the, the sci-fi neologisms are kind of... They're, they're an extra hump to get over. That starts to change then during the 1960s when people are kind of more confident of the language, like the language is starting to become more standardized. And you have people like Cahal O'Sander kind of writing Buck Rogers things in Irish for kids. And they're trying trying out made-up words. You know, like, um, like one of them was Indiaron, which literally, if you were to translate it into English, it means perpendiculator. I suppose but what he actually means is a flying car. So, uh, you know, you, you can kind of see it taking off towards the middle of the century. And then towards the 1990s and what have you, uh, it, that gets overtaken by uh, Gaelicized uh, neologisms from English language stuff. So, like, phaser in Irish is phaser, you know, like F-E-F-A-S-A-I-R kind of thing. So, uh, in, in one respect, the, the old invention has gone by the wayside but at you know at the same time people are confident about doing that now so uh this is published by tramp press's uh, recovered voices series as you say uh and we kind of stop around about 1960 um how about uh, the current uh, irish sci-fi scene are there any authors out there that you'd like to recommend oh god yes uh i mean like in, off, the, off the top of my head sarah maria griffin is one her novel a Spare and Found Parts is like a modern Irish feminist retelling of Frankenstein. It's absolutely amazing. Go check it out. Ruth Frances Long has done, like, I mean, she's kind of working in multiple different series at the moment. She's done urban fantasy. She's done high fantasy. She's doing space opera as well. Absolutely worth checking out. There's uh, Joe Zebedee from the North, and like she's done... Uh, her own kind of space opera series which involves a lot of family po- I mean it's like Game of Thrones crossed with Star Wars to kind of boil it down really more than it should be I mean it's it's much more kind of unique and 
scintillating that I've just made it sound, but you should definitely check it out. As well as that, like I mean, I mean, a lot of us are, are kind of um, interested in genre blurring as well. So, I mean, the hard and fast divisions between sci-fi, fantasy, and horror—they seem to be fading away at the moment, and it's producing a lot of very interesting stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, things like Danny Denton's uh, *The Early King* and *The Kid in Yellow*, which mm. brings in some Lovecraftian, post-apocalyptic kind of stuff, like um, *Oshin McGann*. As well, who kind of writes very politically aware, uh, kind of dystopian stuff, primarily aimed at younger readers. Like, I mean, don't let that put you off. I mean, a lot of stuff gets labeled as YA kind of thing, and oh, you think, oh, that's kid stuff, but you know, absolutely not. Um, so, like, I mean, Oshin McGann, Connor Costick is an, another Irish writer who does similar kind of stuff. Um, his uh, epic and saga series, very, very worth reading i mean off the top of like i mean i'm trying to to primarily sci-fi here which kind of (laughs) means that the name very healthy scene then it sounds like Uh, yeah god it is is. yeah yeah yeah. so what's next for you what are you working on at the moment well i'll tell you like i mean just today before you called me up i spent i spent the whole day working on another book and i just got it sent off before you called me um so if I seem incoherent or slightly dazed, that's, that's why. <laughs> and it, it's another academic book. It's it's something that I should have handed in a year ago, but, you know, it's finally over. So um, there'll be two academic things with any luck coming out within the next year. And after that, I've got a couple of other things in the pipeline. Uh, we'll see what comes of them. Um, not going to jinx any of them yet, but, you know, well, we'll see. That's fair enough. Um, cool. So um, I just sort of normally round off the podcast by asking uh, a few sort of set questions to each of my guests. So uh, the first one is, what was the last book that you read? The last book that I read, um, I'll tell you, it was Rosewater by Tade Thompson. Uh, he's a British Nigerian author. It's a sci-fi novel set in uh, kind of middle, I don't know, like around the 2030s to the 2050s uh, in Nigeria where an alien life form has come to Earth and just kind of plonked itself in the middle of Nigeria. Nobody knows exactly what it is or what it's there for or what it wants, but it's had colossal effects on human society and on the environment and there's political shenanigans, there's criminal shenanigans. I'm loath to say any more about it but i mean it is fantastic it's like the saint crossed with uh district nine crossed with the blob and a bunch of other that things you should brilliant i'm definitely going to look that up um next it's one fantastic. a book that you wish you'd written slash is it's kind of a roundabout way of saying what is your favorite book i suppose uh i mean i mean this is one of those awful questions is like you know which one is your favorite child? Oh, yeah. I, I, I ask awful questions as well. I do ask very bad questions. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, like, I mean, one kind of series that I really wish I'd, I'd written, and, uh, uh, like, I mean, this is just because I read it at a formative age, and, you know, these were the first books that ever frightened the shit out of me, and they so, they, they changed my outlook on literature forevermore afterwards and that was the Deptford Mice trilogy by Robin Jarvis and it's a a series of children's books 
books. It's about anthropomorphic mice, and they're living in the basement of a house in Deptford in London, and they have their own culture, they have their own rituals and what have you, but each book is a reenactment of like some classic horror fiction. So like it starts out with like um, you know, Rosemary's baby and the devil rides out, who's hung to the wicker man. <laughs> with mice. With mice and with uh, rats and squirrels and bats and what have you like each of the rodent species is represented and they all have <laughs> some weird occult uh, backstory to them. Like, I mean, he wrote another trilogy later on called The Deptford Histories, where he explains where this big war between the bats and the squirrels came from, and what have you, and you know, it's just, it's it's crazy stuff. I mean, it, it's the kind of thing that you might come up with and you might think, oh, well, you know, that's a ridiculous idea. I'm not going to bother writing that because it's, <laughs> it's the kind of thing. But I mean, he, he had the idea, I think it was because he used to kind of build little model monsters for TV shows, what have you. He, he was an art school graduate and he used to design things oh, for right. doctors. So I think that just gave him the confidence to go, yeah, yeah, to hell with it, lean into it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, why not? You, it's amazing stories involving, you know, mice and rats battling the dark forces. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Uh... Sort of finally, is there anything that you'd like to recommend to our listeners to read, like short stories, or it could be a piece of non-fiction? You see, I mean, this is something I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about it because the book hasn't been released yet. But I mean, I think I can I can discuss it without giving away particulars. Um, and this is uh, Sarah Davis Goff's forthcoming novel, Last Ones Left Alive. It is astonishing it is like the road combined with the walking dead set in ireland but again i mean that's all kind of high concept cliche kind of thing just mashing familiar things together in the hope of approximating so i mean it is astonishing um i've been reading it for the past couple of weeks it's i mean it's it's i mean it, it succeeds on a visceral level you know, you can see, like, the actual physical toll that living in a zombie apocalypse takes on people. You know, like, the first line of the book is about somebody pulling off a, a rotten toenail. <laughs> it's, it's an astonishing piece of work. and It's communicated through a really authentic rural Irish voice. So, basically, I mean, you, like, the main character is a colchie walking around the middle of Ireland trying to make her way to Dublin and, you know, kung fuing zombies as they appear out of nowhere. But, you know, and they're not really zombies. They're something... It's, you know, it's too difficult to explain without giving away too much. Like, it does so, indeed sound awesome. Uh, I, yes. I'll definitely be trying to get a copy when that comes out. Um, yeah. Normally, I would finish off the podcast here, but something has just occurred to me that I wanted to ask you about, and that is um, it's a device that you use when you're kind of teaching your students called the time telephone. Is right, that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this, this is, like, I mean, I don't get the opportunity to use this a lot, but it is a very handy thing. It's, it's to do with um, what I was saying before about uh, sci-fi neologisms and how some people don't like them and how some people don't like the experience of reading 
a story because a sci-fi story typically it will drop you into an unfamiliar world and then ask you to figure yourself out you know on your own it won't give you that many clues like so a sci-fi world is kind of like an iceberg and the bit that you see described is only a tiny fraction of a whole made-up world that you have to kind of discern with reference to your own prior experience so the example that i use is a time telephone right if we could if we had a telephone that would allow us to communicate to somebody in the 1930s and we could send back one sentence how would they make sense of something that we say right so the, the sentence that i use is john shuffled his ipod and listened to the rolling stones Okay, so you send that back in time to somebody in the 1920s or the 1930s. How are they going to interpret that? Mm. They hear the word iPod. I mean, the first thing that's going to come, maybe it's a pea pod full of human eyeballs. <laughs> you know, <laughs> his iPod and then listen to the Rolling Stones. Does that mean he listened to an avalanche or something? I mean, what's, what's going on? But sci-fi is built on conceit that even if something is completely nonsensical to you if you take it on faith that there is an underlying logic to it you can figure it out with your own common sense so the idea is that you send that sentence back to the 1930s initially they might have no idea what they're t what you're talking about but they will eventually figure out given enough contextual clues that an ipod is a music device and that the rolling stones are a band and that this is a, a thing that people do in the future, that they carry around a device in their pocket that allows them to listen to music whenever they want to. This is what I use to try and get students on board with the whole thing of reading science fiction neologisms and kind of getting into the groove of just, you know, reading a thing and letting the neologism wash, wash over you until you kind of figure out what's going on. And, you know, it's a bit like jazz that way. It isn't always successful, but, you know, it, it is helpful, I find. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks for explaining that to me. Um, it's a really great book. It's it's uh, it's just come out. Uh, it's, a couple, it's about a couple of months ago, is it? Or anyway, it's available from all good bookshops, as they say. It's published by Tramp Press, and it's really great, Jack. I really enjoyed reading it, and I think it's been a fascinating chat. Thank you very much, Aaron. It's been great talking to you. <laughs> And that was Jack. Many thanks to him for taking part. I recorded that interview in December and listening back to it just now, I realise I've forgotten just how fascinating some of those stories and authors are. If you're at all interested, I urge you to go out and buy Brilliant Void. And Last Ones Left Alive has definitely leapt to the top of my to-read list on the basis of Jack's recommendation. And that's all. Until next time. And remember... The child had a moustache.